Welcome to episode 113. Thank you for joining us. This week, we welcome back to the show Andrew Biggio to discuss his most recent book, The Rifle Two. When Andrew returned home from tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, he had huge questions about the price of war. He decided to ask those he knew would understand, veterans of World War II. William and Nancy talked to Andrew about his book and how it delves into the suffering and complexity of war that World War II veterans experienced. Andrew reveals the darker side of the greatest generation while illuminating the struggles they endured to create a better world. In recounting the stories of these veterans, Andrew takes the greatest generation off its pedestal to demonstrate that we may have more in common with them than previously thought, wrestling with their share of weaknesses and flaws while answering the call of duty. Here is episode 113. Enjoy! Hello, Skullbill listeners. Welcome back to the show. I am William. We are here today with Nancy. Hi, everyone. And today we are going to speak with the author, a returning guest, Andy Biggio, of the book The Rifle, and also The Rifle 2 the sequel to his first book. Andy, how are you? Good. Great to be back on the show. I had a really good time last time. All right. Awesome. So just to get started, um, you your book, uh, the second one, is much more, how do I say, it feels like you have a completely different tone entirely than the first one. You you, you speak about that in the introduction, but do you mind just, uh, you know, preloading for our audience, talking about what was your mental approach for the second book as opposed to the first one? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I even felt different writing it. Um, you know, I, I wanted to include stories of valor in the, the typical World War II victory stories and heroes. And, and I, I don't mean to say typical, like I'm, I'm downplaying uh, what those what the greatest generation was, because I included some magnificent stories right from the beginning with um, talking about the Battle of Peleliu with Emilio Maglicane and then talking about my buddy Eddie Cottrell, who was a fighter pilot <clears throat> during the Battle of the Bulge. But I wanted this book to be different. You know, when I wrote Rifle One, I wanted that to be different than the millions of other World War II books already written. Um, so I wanted to be different again with rifle two, you know, rifle one, I interjected a lot of myself and what it was like being the youngest generation of veterans saying goodbye to the oldest generation. And then rifle two, I decided to go, let's go a little controversial. Let's go with, um, some of the world war two veterans who did not live up to the greatest generation name, uh, in some of the chapters and, and hit speed bumps when they came home and made mistakes and, some of them were liars. Some of them were alcoholics. Some of them went to prison. Um, some of them committed war crimes. Some of them witnessed war crimes. So I wanted to, <clears throat> again, elevate myself to a different level of World War II history because I'm Johnny come lately when it comes to writing books about World War II. So for, for clarification, what was the, the years that uh, you spent writing the first book as opposed and what years would you spend writing the second book? Uh, I started like doing my interviews and researching, collecting stories, I think around 2016 to 2020 or 2019 for Rifle One. And for Rifle Two, those stories, some of those stories were already collected in that time frame as well. They just didn't make the first book. Um, you know, it took me like five years to write Rifle One, and then it took me about a year to write Rifle Two. Um, because I had already done a ton of traveling, collected a lot of stories, and um, yeah. 
So do you think, I mean, I mean, you maybe touch on it a little bit in the introduction of the second book, but just your general, like, I guess, you know, a lot's happened in the years since you've written the first one and the second one. And that I've, as I've noticed, the general tone of, him, of the United States and the average person has gone a lot darker with COVID and a lot of like the social political stuff going on. Do you think that had any impact on your, your, your um, not only perception of the greatest generation, but just uh, style and writing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a great point. Um, great, great point. I've done hundreds of interviews since my second book come out and that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, how about even myself watching the fall of Afghanistan, you know, from a television working the front desk at a police station and watching that go on, go on on the TV above me and then dealing with whatever crisis someone's walking through the door up to the, the uh, police window. Um, it was a rough it's been a rough year. It's been a rough, excuse me, it's been a rough few years with the protests, COVID, uh, the pullout of Afghanistan. Um, and yes, it absolutely changed the way I see things and the way I look at my country, the way I look at generals, you know, things like that. And that's actually why I had a gentleman who served in the German army write the forward to my book. So do you mind going into uh, a little more detail, especially because that, that was uh, for me when I when I saw, you know, who was writing that forward, it definitely uh, made me pause for a second. What was the process of, of meeting this individual and how did you how did you convince a German soldier to write a book primarily focusing on American soldiers? Well, I was getting ready to take four World War II veterans back to Germany, back to the concentration camps, Buchenwald. I wanted to show these veterans what they fought for. Some of them had never seen a concentration camp. Uh, others liberated subcamps, but Buchenwald is a pretty big camp that's still open and serves as a museum today. And while I was on social media promoting the fact that I was bringing World War II veterans to Europe, a... German historian who was about my age reached out to me and said, hey, uh, you know, I love what you're doing. I'm doing the same with German veterans. Um, I have a gentleman by the name of Dr. Gerhard Fempel. Um, I'd love for him to meet and make peace with American veterans. However, I do have to tell you, he did serve with the 2nd SS Panzer Division. And obviously the SS are notoriously known for being the worst divisions and units out there. Uh, I did my restart search on Mr. Fempel, and he was a replacement during the Battle of the Bulge, um, surrendered in Vienna, Austria, um, wasn't, you know, particularly pre not present that I could find uh, historical wise being present for taking part of some of the war crimes that happened in Normandy and happened on the Eastern Front and things like that. So uh, I said, yeah, that's fine. We'll meet with them. But the veterans that I'm bringing have to unanimously vote that they all want to meet him too. This is really up to them, not me. It wasn't, they didn't even think about it. They didn't even hesitate. These four veterans wanted to meet a German veteran. And when I saw these, the Americans meet him and watch the shaking of the hands, the hugging, the forgiveness going back and forth, you know, one thing that struck me a lot was um, it was a B-17 bombardier named Bud Heideke uh eighth air force and he grabbed the ss man by his hand and said i feel really awful for what we did to germany all those people we killed all those bombs we dropped and i'm so sorry about that and you know the ss guy apologized for what he did and that bud said you know i'm i'm actually german i have german ancestry in my blood to think that i know i was firebombing or killing my own cousins is just 
always sat wrong with me. And so when I saw these men making peace 80 years later, <clears throat> I thought, you know what, why not give this SS guy a voice? Let's hear what he has to say. And I asked him to write the forward and I told him, listen, you know, uh, not not comparing myself to any SS division, but here I am watching the fall of Afghanistan, watching um, all the different stuff that has happened over the years. You know, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I would do it again. I love the Marines. I'd serve in Iraq and Afghanistan again. But at the end of the day, I was definitely convinced by a lot of information that was not factual and didn't pan out the way it was supposed to be. And I ran gun first into other countries and wanted to serve my country and believed everything my country said and how much different is that than the german soldier and you know people always say well you know he wasn't just a german soldier he was an ss well i i didn't join the marine corps to hug people you know and so um that's why i thought staying on the basis of controversy uh why not have a guy um, like him right the forward it, it's a bold move, and it seems to me that you had a lot of bold moves. You took a lot of risks with this second book, mm. and the the thing that jumped out at me as a as a really bold risk was, and a good one, was the chapter about stolen valor. And I was so impressed that you willingly shared that story. Um, you never had to tell anybody about that at all. That could have just gone away, and no one ever would have known about that can you can you talk a little bit about that and why you decided to spare that yeah uh, you know i changed that gentleman's name uh in the book but the family ultimately figured it out anyhow um and that's like probably the biggest chunk of negativity i've gotten um but you know this is a gentleman who nearly almost could have destroyed my reputation as a credible author as a historian by telling me he served with the 101st Airborne and jumped into Normandy and participated in all this stuff. And here I am par par parading him around Normandy, taking people's money to meet him. And um, when it all came crashing down and I found out he was um, not necessarily a total fraud, but just was never in the 101st Airborne, didn't jump into you know D-Day and none of that stuff. I decided to take a look at the stolen valor aspect and that stolen valor is not a new phenomenon and that veterans have been lying no, since it's not. the day of the first days of combat. I'm sure cavemen lied about the size of the woolly mammoths they took down. And, you know, um, so I wanted to go into why he lied, who he was and my experience with that. Cause I'm not the only historian to get burned by a veteran, by a world war II veteran. Um, you know, there's all sorts of stories, guys going back to Norm Omaha Beach and shaking Barack Obama's hand and telling, you know, everyone they were on the first wave of the 29th Division. And I mean, I've had so many veterans tell me they, uh, you know, they're in that famous photo with the Marine Raiders in Guadalcanal, the one where everyone's in jungle fatigues and like posing. I've had a few guys tell me they're in that photo. I've had I've had people tell me they helped raise the flag on Iwo Jima, you know, Um and, you know, we, we know all who those people were. They are named. It's been figured out, you know. And right. so I, I thought it was good not just just keep doing the whole honky-dory greatest generation. Let's go over some guys that are no different than today's veterans who have made mistakes or did something wrong. And, and that the greatest generation is not perfect. 
What What did you learn from that experience about yourself? Maybe not. Not to, I'm, and that came out wrong. I'm not saying that. You know, what did you learn as a historian? What did you learn about yourself? And uh, because I thought you handled it with extreme class, extreme grace. Yeah, because that guy, if he had just told me what he actually did in the service, I would have still brought him to Normandy. No, I brought him to Europe twice. So he's got two free trips out of me. His kids got free trips out of me. Um, you know, I got taken advantage of big time, but he had been lying since the as far back as I can date, probably the 60s of going to reunions, going to Europe himself, pretending to be, you know, 101st Airborne and things like that. Um, you know, I found stuff, ribbons and medals that are very, very old that he's been wearing them for, you know, five decades, maybe four decades. And, you know, he's featured in actually other books. Uh, so, <clears throat> I learned, I guess, to forgive him because I remember when I first got out of the military and I became a police officer and I used to get so upset whenever I'd run as a rookie cop, I'd run into, I'd be working the streets of Boston and then a homeless guy would tell me he was a door gunner in Vietnam or another homeless guy told me he got the medal of honor. And, you know, and I'd be like, I'd take it personal. Like, look at these scumbags lying about their service and, you know, I get all worked up about it. <clears throat> What I learned from that particular veteran was just, you know, forgiveness. I, I saw the way he was living. I saw the way why he wanted to lie and pretend to be a hero because his life had been so full of trauma that he used this persona to get through his crappy life. And I mean, it was crappy, you know, um, you know, we mentioned he was a product of, uh, you know, incest. We mentioned that he was a runaway from Canada and that's all true stuff that I was able to figure out um, through other family members and things like that. And so, yeah, he was, he was, a, his wife was a hoarder, you know, the fire department had to bust the windows open, things like that. Well, so, sorry, Nancy, continue. Yeah, we keep stepping on each other, William. Sorry about that. No, I was just going to want to say, uh, kind of go back to chapter one, talking about how, how open you were and the risks you took in writing this book. You were really open about your your experience dealing with your own memories of combat in chapter one. And there's a particular passage where you said, you know, that you you had had this experience at work that gave you, you know, a flashback back to combat and it it really affected you in pretty deeply and you wrote there was only one group of people capable of getting me out of this funk veterans and so you started writing another book again um how can you can you just kind of talk a little bit and that that again is a risk to be so open and and you know i don't, I don't know if vulnerable is the right word but to really lay your cards out there on the table like that can you talk a little bit about that and you know, how, how you are motivated to keep talking to veterans and what that does for you and, and, you know, how you're generally feeling about the world? <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember I went to an active shooter situation as a police officer and it was the flies that were landing on the bodies that just, wow, was like a portal. 
and it reminded me of the flies in Afghanistan, the flies landing on bodies in Afghanistan. And um, the next morning, I couldn't get out of bed. I just like was so drained. The adrenaline cr a crash was so bad. <clears throat> One of the worst I've ever, 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 ever had. And, you know, I called a couple of police officers and told them how I felt. And it still just was like, I felt like I was exposing myself too much to them. So the solution to me was grab the, the rifle and hit the road again. And I did. I went down to like, you know, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, got the rifle signed, met some new veterans. And and because that made me feel good. Um, and it's and it's funny now I'm like crossing over now to like, you know, the, the rifle project is done. It's finished. And, uh, you know, for World War Two and now. Um, it's it was such a good therapeutic mission for me, better than, you know, any form of psychiatry, any form of medication, anything like that it was just sitting across from these guys. And it was even better when I would sit across from a World War II veteran who then became a police officer as well. Those were always the coolest ones I felt closest to. And uh, yeah, I think that's just <clears throat> what it was for me. It was therapy getting that rifle getting names and let's put pen to paper again and use that negative experience into positive um and i actually ended up giving um ten thousand dollars each to the victims of that active shooter situation as well for their uh funeral costs oh wow mm -hmm. so uh, you kind of hinted it on a little bit so you said um the rifle project is over and what in your book will probably be the last accounts a lot of these individuals um have available to tell their story uh, as in within 10 years it's likely that all, all all have passed how do you uh argue that your um both your first and second book have uh contributed to i don't want to say myth is right word, but maybe like the narrative of the greatest generation and to what extent do you believe that you you've challenged that and and to have a more dynamic presentation of, of this generation well, I thought it was a beautiful tactic. I mean, to to win a war and and to get um, unconditional surrender. I mean, having everybody on the same page, every newspaper, every um, movie theater, every politician pushing the greatest generation, pushing that we need to drop atomic bombs, pushing that we need to uh, eliminate everyone that claims their SS, and and that was the last time we really kind of won a, a war, uh, so to say, won. Um, you know, obviously, there's the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Iraq, Afghanistan. These were all, I mean, to me, winnable wars if you use the same playbook as World War II. But, you know, now we don't take land and own it. We don't, um, you know, things that put that, that uh, you know, soldiers and sailors and Marines did back in World War II could put these guys in jail today. Um, politics is vastly different who's in politics so <clears throat> yeah you know I, I definitely did challenge it and I had to challenge it for the mental health of the veterans today they the veterans say don't deserve to live in the shadows of the World War II generation and say you're the greatest generation I'm nothing I mean we all feel that way those guys are the goats right they're the greatest of all time those guys are awesome I wrote two books on those guys but at the end of the day they were the same as you, you know, 9-11 um, veterans had 9-11 as their Pearl Harbor. Those veterans had Pearl Harbor, you know, and they joined for the same reasons to protect the country, to serve at all costs and wear the same uniform as their grandfathers and great grandfathers. And those guys 
their problems were swept under the rug big time when it became PTSD, alcoholism, criminal activity. Um, because today there's nonprofits that make money off PTSD in veterans. So to expose and share things like that um, benefits and makes a lot of people rich compared to back back in the day when it was swept under the rug and combat fatigue and PTSD was looked at as uh, cowardliness, you know. Or that's, a, that's, that's a really interesting take on that. Um, and, and yeah, as I was, I was making some notes as I was reading. Um, and one of the things I wrote down is how in the last chapter, you say it is important for the, the vet, your peers, your era of veterans to understand that even the greatest generation wasn't flawless. Um, I, I think that was a really interesting a, a point that maybe not everybody's making, but it's it's the reality. Um, you know, they're just like everybody else. They're just like every other veteran. They, you know, have their difficulties too. Yep, for sure, for sure. And a lot of it, like I said, was um, was covered up. And I think a lot of it had to do with everybody was a veteran back then. So. You know, there was 16 million World War II veterans um, that the VA says, you know, earned the World War II Victory Medal. And they went in every form walks of life. So, you know, if some guy went into the mob, another guy became a politician. If one guy became a police officer, another guy became a biker. You know, they were just everywhere. So nobody blamed being a veteran as a problem to a particular instance of something. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the stories I've told a couple of times just in in researching one of the he was the second leading ace in the black sheep squadron he was a navy cross recipient and after the war he, he was an adrenaline junkie and he decided one of his next moves was going to be to rob a bank and so he did and he ended up going to jail for that um it, it's just a you know that's not a story that gets told a lot, but, um, you know, yeah, it, it, they think uh, D.B. Cooper was a World War II paratrooper, you know, because he jumped out of a plane with all that money and man, that's never right, him, you know. Um, so there's all sorts of things. And then a lot of guys, if you look at a lot, if you do, if you do a lot of mafia mob research, you'll see guys were World War II veterans and um, things like that. So the rifle two, um, well, the rifle and the rifle two, the book and the rifle itself kind of took on a life of their own. Um, did all of that surprise you? Yes. And I just put a Facebook post out the other day and then I deleted it because I thought it was too corny or just like too full of myself. But, um, you know, I, I remember being in eighth or ninth grade when um band of brothers came out the miniseries band of brothers i didn't have hbo so i would have a i'd bring a blank vhs tape to school and my buddy who had hbo would take the blank vhs tape and tape it and record it for me tape it you know and you know i think that was like every monday and then tuesday he'd give it to me and i wouldn't want to know what happened i would want to go home put it in and watch it and then you know, and I and I thought to myself, one day I hope to be able to tell the story of these veterans because 
I had ADD. I couldn't sit still. So to me, sacrifice was best shown to me on feature film on the silver screen compared to opening a, a book and having to read a, a boring textbook. So I said to myself, that'd be really cool to honor these guys one day, you know, and then fast forward, however many years that was 20 years ago, <clears throat> here I am hosting a panel in Washington, DC of the actors, followed by the following week, hosting my own book signing in Boston and having like George Luz's son in the crowd, getting his book signed by me, you know, George Luz was the radio operator in the, in the easy company. And it's like, that's when it kind of hit me. Like, how did I get here? How did this happen? And it's all because of that rifle. Why do you uh, think people were... Sorry, oh. continue, Nancy. Uh, uh, why do you think people responded so favorably? I think definitely me being a veteran helps. Absolutely. Uh, I think people, a lot of people who are following, it's, you know, particularly New Englanders, um, uh, you know, I can say for New Englanders, they've been following me, helping wounded veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. And then for me to move on to World War II was great. And I think on Instagram, the videos, the priceless videos of me putting that rifle in these veterans' hands again and recording their reactions and their movements at such a late age has taken over a lot of social media. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what is your what's your action been uh, to these two books so far, not only from people from uh, older eras, but also younger generations, millennials, Gen Zs, have have they grasped interest in this subject in your in your work, or uh, do you feel like the younger generations are are because World War II is now a lot of these? Like I said, in ten years, pretty much every World War II veteran will be will be will be have passed away. Yeah. And as we get further removed from it, is this still a topic that's gripping America's youth per se? Definitely. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of distractions with, with the war in Ukraine and the war in Israel with, um, excuse me, Gaza, Israel, whatever. And, you know, people seeing it, you know, live helmet cams on their, you know, the heads is definitely takes away from the old black and white stuff. But no, with, without a doubt, I would say I have 80, almost 80,000 Instagram followers, and they're anywhere between 15 years old and 70 years old and so i have a lot of mothers reaching out to me saying my son loves your page uh, i'd like to get a signed book for him with a personal note for christmas or my son did a you know a book report on your book at school and i have schools inviting me uh to speak at their schools you know um so that's really good you know it'd probably be more receptive if you know my project wasn't revolved around a rifle and gun violence in america would probably so this would probably be way better for me but um it, it's amazing how many young kids are out there uh hitting me up on instagram taking part in my uh, trivia questions or my competitions to investigate uh you know if, if a dog tag was found in europe and i posted on instagram saying let's help find the family member of the dog it's all 15 year old kids hitting me up with stuff they found on ancestry.com and the national archives and so it's really it's i do have some uh faith in, in the youth if you don't mind, uh, what are, what have you done school vis visits and what are those like? Yes, I have. I've done multiple universities. Uh, I have a couple of high school um, requests on my email now. I've done Memorial Day and Veterans Day ceremonies in auditoriums in schools. Um, and it's really cool, really receptive. Um, you know, 
people forget it's an actual like rifle that actually hurts people and kills people. You know, it's it's covered in names now, so people are just drawn away from the violence and more into the legacies of mm-hmm. the names on the rifle. We're pointing at each other. Make sure we don't uh, step on the step take on the mic. Away, so, Nancy. Yeah, take it. I'll I'll take it away. So that's got to be that's got to be invigorating to know that young people. I mean, that's a big deal. It's that young people are getting interested and ultimately getting interested in history because you know, as all three of us know, if we don't learn our history, we're just going to continue to repeat it and all the bad parts of it over and over and over again. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we still, we're still doing it somehow. Um, And, you know, it's, we're going to be at the point where our nation's youth, I mean, even my kids, my kids are four and two years old. And while they've physically have met a World War II veteran, they'll never be able to hold a conversation with a World War II veteran like I did. Um, right. And that's kind of crazy to think about. And, um, you know, and I, I can see myself, my kids asking me one day, hey, what were they like? What would they say about this? And would they, you know, so. Uh, and then World War II will become like World War One and the Civil War, where it's just like, oh, look at these black and white photos. And that war was a, seems like it was a thousand years ago. And who cares? And, um, you know, so. Well, so what yeah. do you. Sorry, God dang it, Nancy. All right, you're up. Keep going. We need a symbol. Go ahead. No, William, you're up. Well, uh, so you mentioned, you know, this is probably the end of your, of your World War II project. Uh, and you're right. Your your children may not be able to hold a conversation with a World War II veteran, maybe not even Korean War. But, you know, we have Vietnam, all other sorts of excursions, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, this has ta- This project has taken up a lot of your time in the past few years. Where do you see yourself going, not only as a historian, but also as a writer and as someone who also interacts with veterans and, and storytelling? Well, I was in D.C. the other day and I met a, a man whose great uncle was also killed in World War II, like me. And I'm giving a speech. I was hosting the, the Band of Brothers panel. I was hosting a World War II panel. And this gentleman um, is last is full name is Tommy Langton and his uncle was killed in the 87th division and he came up to me and he shows me a receipt on his phone and he's like I just bought you an M16A1 an early M16 so you can start doing this with the Vietnam vets <laughs> Holy said, oh, shit. <laughs> literally bought bought the whole gun he's like as long as my neighbor's the first guy to sign it in Pittsburgh and I said, well, you just robbed me of seven years of my life. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> you better um, talk that over with your family. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. And so, yeah. So I, I guess that's that's what I'll be doing. Do uh, I mean, do you have any, I don't know, because is there any, has there been any overlap with World War II and Korean veterans? Uh, so to me, like chasing ghosts is so financially, is a financial burden. <laughs> Meaning if I interview one veteran who served an I company 22nd Marine Regiment that's still alive at age 98 in Massachusetts, the only other survivor from that company or even that regiment might be in Bend, Oregon, and I got to fly all the way there to get his account. Korean War veterans, combat Korean War veterans are harder to find than World War II veterans. There was fewer of them. There was lesser of them. And, you know, there wasn't 100 divisions that fought in Korea. There was only like 
20 or something like that, maybe less than that. Um, my Korean War history is not up to par compared to World War II, but they are virtually the same age, five years younger than World War II veterans. Um, and they are harder to find than World War than World War II veterans. So I don't, as much as I want to, you know, I'm going to let someone else tell the Korean War veteran story is basically what I'm saying it because um, I rather get the, the Vietnam guys while they're in their mid seventies. <laughs> so. And well, so also, you're, you're actually going to start the project. You're actually going to do this. I guess so. I mean, the guy bought me a gun. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean you know, he didn't just buy you a gun. I mean, like imagine, you know, M1 grants, you can still get, you know, maybe for a pretty penny than maybe 10 years ago, but M1681, that's a little, that, that's, that's a little more serious firepower. Yeah, I know. So it is going to be a little different walking into venues and things like that with, uh, with that. So I'm going to have to do a whole different type of, uh, I'm going to think tactfully on that one and, and see, you'll probably have to do a lot of private roams because that actually looks like the same weapon of war people are using today to hurt people. Mm -hmm. So is it like fully functioning, complete, like, or do they, is there like missing a firing pin or? Well, no. Yeah. So basically he was asking me, he's like, Hey, do you have your machine gun license? Cause those ones were auto back then. Like, I do. I do not have my machine gun license. He's like, okay, well the, here, here's one that's semi-auto. I said, okay, fine. Let's do that. So. Oh, so, so I mean, you have to give yourself credit. I mean, you set yourself in a position where people are offering you fully automatic M16s. I mean, people have sent me M1 grands in the mail. Really? Yeah. I've gotten two of them. So what do you, what did you do with those? You just have those stored or. I have, I'm going to give them to each of my sons to, so they can remember what I did, what my projects I did. So. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, yes. For, for the audience who can't see, I I've had my mouth open, just staring at the computer screen for 30, for 30 seconds. Well, that that's, I mean, not a, not a bad gig. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it, especially because we've had a, a few, a few Vietnam veterans working at the Marine Corps Association. And as someone who um, has forced many friends to watch Ken Burns' Vietnam, just have a semblance of understanding of, of the conflict as a whole. I think future generations, especially considering what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, has a lot to learn from the Vietnam War era generation. So I certainly look forward to, uh, to, to seeing that future project. And I guess you, what you said, seven years uh, or so, give or take. <clears throat> yeah, I think it'll be probably faster because there's more Vietnam veterans alive, you know, mm -hmm. so, but they're, they're, you know, the average lifespan of an American male is, I think, in the 70s. So that's where they're at right now. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm still losing a lot stories, too. Mm -hmm. Do you think they're going to be reluctant to talk just because of the, um, I know I've spoken and, and just recently with a number of Vietnam veterans and, um, you know, the way they were received when they came back home is, is the most difficult memory of all for them to deal with rather than their difficult combat experiences, which is completely different from the World War II generation. <clears throat> yeah, I, I've met uh, so the last, believe it or not, the last week I've been around probably like a hundred Vietnam. So I went to two different events. I went to, you know, Veterans Day in Birmingham, Alabama. I was at the American Veterans Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I was at various events in Massachusetts. And 
it seems like more of them are coming out of the woodwork now to want to talk about it. Uh, I think the popularity amongst them is getting higher. You know, we have an official Vietnam Veterans Day now in the United States. Um, their uniforms and, and trinkets and hats and bringbacks on military websites are going for big money now. Um, I think it's going to be the next, you know, it might not be as crazy as World War II uh, love and history is, but that'll only take, what, one miniseries to change that for the Vietnam guys? And then you might have this whole new wave of, of, of things. So um, it, it's definitely getting up there. It's getting up there in popularity. They are the next veterans up. They're the next old timers to look up to. And so I, I think it's going to be. Um... And then, of course, the number one question asked in my DMs on Facebook and on Instagram is, hey, do you plan on doing Vietnam next? Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, so what do you want your legacy to be? interesting um yeah i just uh, i want to be known as a you know a good police officer a good marine and a great veterans advocate and of course ultimately i want to be cherished by my two sons you know so as being a as being an awesome dad you know um so that that's it i don't think i want anything more you know well and yeah. andy my, my final question for you is um, now that your World War II project is over, um, you, you've interviewed hundreds and you, your whole point was, I guess, to not maybe not whole point, but a good portion of your writing was to, you know, take lessons from previous generations to then inform how current generations and current generations of veterans should handle uh, transitions in living life. What, I guess, has been the premier number one lesson that World War II veterans have taught you? Yeah, the that is is um, basically stay busy, you know, and stay busy, stay focused. You know, a lot of these World War II veterans told me in order to, you know, don't sit there and dwell on the past, but just go out there. Come when you came home from the military, get back into college, get a career. When you start a family, have kids, raise your kids. When you finish that career, start a new career stay busy active in your associations your divisions and and that's how i've seen a lot of them live their lives they've stayed so busy they don't have time to dwell and think about the past and um to fall in any kind of hole they've had so much responsibility they have no choice but to keep going um yeah, i remember bob white started running his first marathons when he was 60 years old um other veterans you know that's had awesome. three different careers you know retired from one job and started the next job and that's what I've seen consistent with all those guys. And that's what I plan to do. So that's, right, that's Nancy, great. Nancy, do you have any uh, final questions? No, I was just going to say that's, that's really great. That's great advice. Um, and we hope you will keep us posted on, on what you're doing. I always like seeing, I, I am one of those people who likes watching those videos on Instagram. Um, it, it's, I love hearing the stories and I love seeing the connection that you're able to meet with, with people, you know, veteran to veteran. It's, it's uh, something that more of us should be doing is making those connections with each other in person. Um, it's really important thing you're doing and I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, Andy, for audience, do you mind just telling them uh, where they can find you on social media, how they can purchase your books? Um, holiday season is coming up. I purchased your first book for my uh, grandfather on last year. So I probably have a pretty good idea what he's getting this year, but uh, do you mind just uh, tell your audience that? 
Sure. You can find Rifle and The Rifle 2 on Amazon or at my website, theworldwar2rifle.com. And uh, you can follow me on Instagram at The Rifle and Facebook, The Rifle. All right. Well, Andy, thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. To our audience out there, you heard them. Know where to find them. Know where to get the books. Help a brother out. And uh, thanks. And uh, we'll hopefully uh, hear from you all again. Thank you. A common axiom is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Another axiom is that we sweat in peace so that we don't bleed in war. Here at the Marine Corps Association, we fully understand both. That is why we offer through our professional development page on our website, a comprehensive catalog of battle studies, tactical and ethical decision games, and war games to ensure that not only do we learn from the past, but we embrace the thoughts and decisions that influence the outcomes of some of the greatest actions of the Marine Corps. We have tools and techniques that will enhance both unit training as well as enable comprehensive self-study. Check out all that the Marine Corps Association has to offer on our website. Go to mca-marines.org forward slash professional development. That's mca-marines.org forward slash professional dash development and get your reps and sets in. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Anthony Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.